0: Cool, Rohan, great to have you on Buddhist Geeks again, my friend. It's been too long.
1: I know it has been a while hasn't it?
0: Yeah, I feel like both of us probably having uh, small kids and building you know new businesses and yeah I mean gosh, it's a phase of life thing seems like <laughs> a lot of it. I
1: was looking at my calendar so I made a note which was it's. When is it exactly? It's 10 years coming up from when I first started blogging, like sort of doing my sort of Buddhist blogging, which then led to my meeting you through Buddhist Geeks, which then led to, I guess, me getting into the work I do and Buddhify as well. So, like, that that's, that's <laughs> it feels like uh, a lot's happened in that 10 years, I guess.
2: Yes,
0: indeed. I mean, you were reminding me of the term, uh, the Buddha blogosphere. That was, uh, was that around the same time that you were blogging?
1: Yeah, and that was a thing when, a thing which you could sort of put your arms around. There were maybe 20, if that, sort of people actively writing about their practice. Or more, it was less about people writing about their practice, more writing about their understanding of the practice in the context of, Pop culture or digital culture or modern life, and um, yeah, that was uh, there was there was an award, there was the Bloggy Sapa awards. If you remember that,
0: yeah, I remember. Did I know you and Emily each won multiple Bloggy Sapa?
1: <laughs> My proudest achievement.
0: <laughs> it was that's all been sort of a downward trending slope since. <laughs>
1: I remember in the early days of Buddhist Geeks when, yeah, it would have been a good 10 years, ago, even longer than that, where you were doing a live stream and I was—I think I was the only person on the chat.
0: I'm pretty sure you were the sole person. I think we were so far ahead of the live chat. <laughs> yeah, it, but it was fun it, it, but it, and it worked. That was the thing. It did work. Like you were really, it felt like you were present there with us during the conversation, and you were engaging and kind of part of part of it.
2: Yeah, in a way, that was that was a real cool experiment. Not the least of which, because we got to got to get to know to know you better. So, as you said, a lot's happened over the last ten years, and
0: I, I find it interesting looking back on that period, you know, sort of looking at, for instance, looking at your trajectory, um, it seems like something similar has happened for, for you as has happened for Emily and myself and I've seen it for other people, some other people too, that there's kind of this transition toward the mindfulness movement and away from the more kind of American and Western Buddhist Way of practicing that was more popular during you know the last few decades, sure. And that's 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 an interesting turn, you know. Maybe you could call it like a modernization of dharma, or you could say it's like the unbundling of some aspects of dharma into secular culture. I mean, there's different ways of looking at what's happening there in the mindfulness movements itself, kind of big. But you know, you've been really surfing those waves, um, and especially in the app space and creating, making things. Um, digital um, applications, smartphone applications, Budify, Sleepfulness, Um, you know, you continue to kind of innovate in that space and have been kind of right there as it's been arising. So you, you've been, you know, I'm sure seeing a lot of, of how that space has been evolving, where it's going, where the modern mindfulness movement is heading. Um, That's the stuff I was really also curious to talk about and, you know, see like, where are we now and what's going on in the space. It's, it's it's happening so fast in a way it's hard to track so um curious thoughts on that
1: trajectory was a good word because it feels like it's been shot out of a shot out of a cannon and trying to well it's <laughs> moving so fast and you're trying to, to work out which way is up and then gravity sort of tells you <laughs> so that metaphor feels like a good one i think the i think the sort of Conversation you've hit, you've at all the maybe call it conversational creative tension of traditional forms and newer, more secular forms. I think for me, two, two sort of things come to mind related to that. One is that for me, it's less about modernization and more about accessibility. So, how do we Present and share the practices of the tradition in such a way that reaches more and more people who could benefit them or want to want to engage with them. But for various reasons, there are barriers, and sometimes those barriers are the are uh, to do with how practices are presented. So you know, like the movement from a religious frame, religiously framed meditation tradition into a secular meditation tradition is for me less about unbundling. Well, I I agree with the unbundling sort of argument that you've articulated in the past, but the way I see it now is much more around accessibility and because by presenting something within a religious framework and religious context, in a society where a lot of people are cynical or misunderstanding of religious context, then that, by definition, creates a barrier. And therefore, one way to present it, present these practices in a, in, for that audience who struggle with that barrier is to remove it. And, uh, and so we've seen all sorts of different barriers um, uh, be, uh, removed historically, but I think this one around the the religious or spiritual context is an important and key one, um, certainly within sort of the last ten years, I'd say. Um, and then the other thing, the other reflection I think for me is that that my understanding of the mindfulness tradition, to use that term sort of broadly, going all the way through insight meditation is Theravada, and to Buddhism in general and the sort of wider adjacent traditions is that the history of those traditions has always been one of evolution and change mm. and so I always find it quite bizarre nowadays when within the even within the secular mindfulness world there are parts of the sort of people professionals in that area who look at uh, interventions or processes like the mindfulness therapy therapies, the cognitive therapy or the stress reduction course, and failed to recognize that they themselves those courses themselves were innovations in their time. They were innovations when in the application of these techniques to chronic pain and mental health and so on and but recently perhaps due to the perceived threat from other parts of the mindfulness world. People specializing in those kinds of traditions, or those kinds of interventions or therapies, have ossified around them a little, and they've become holy objects within a, secu- within a secular mindfulness tradition. And so I always like to sort of take a bigger frame, and step back and look at how, Meditation, mindfulness, Buddhism has always changed. It's a, his, it's, it's, it's a history of innovation. From the, from, the, from, the, from the Buddha's awakening onwards, it's always been a tradition which has looked at the, the current cultural context, questioned it, and as those insights and understandings and practices have moved to different countries initially, so moving into Japan and uh, India and Sri Lanka and all these other parts of the land, laterally into the West. The practice has changed and evolved based on the cultural climate that has found itself. And that's the, the joy and the diversity of Buddhism and mindfulness thanks to that ability for the practice to represent itself according to the culture it meets. But I think what's changed in the last 10 years is... The meeting of mindfulness with corporate culture. When I mean corporate, maybe capitalist culture or startup culture. Less, I don't. I'm not talking about using mindfulness in the workplace. I'm talking more about the productization or the uh, the marketplace of mindfulness.
2: Yes. Specifically, the
1: digital mindfulness uh, marketplace is that in the historic evolution of mindfulness, the point of it has always been to improve people's lives, to reduce their suffering, to help people with their mental health issues, to help people with stress, whatever lens or variation of that you want to take. That's always been the primary objective, whether that's been with a religious context or within a medical context, um, or even within a, a sports context, it's all in service of supporting individuals, do better, feel better, be better. And what's different about the marketplace is that that is no longer the primary motivation. The primary motivation, once you subscribe to a conventional capital-backed corporate system or a startup system in the sort of conventional sort of uh, way that's become the default way of running digital businesses nowadays is that the primary objective then becomes return on investment. And that is the that is a discontinuous change in the history of mindfulness in my perspective. I think um, and it can be the case that
2: uh, it can be the case that profitable uh, Well-being companies with good ROI, good return on investment,
1: achieve that through, at the same time, making decisions which are entirely in service of its users' well-being and flourishing. Um, But that's not always the case.
0: Right. That's that's sort of the benevolent uh, dictator. (laughs) Dictator. (laughs) Maybe it's not a dictator. There's not one person in charge. Well, usually there is in a, in a corporation, actually. But um, yeah, I hear I hear, where you're, I hear where you're going with this, I think. And it's um, something I think a lot about, too, especially lately, um, especially in the last couple of years, um, sure. you know, where it feels like predat- the, the predatory aspect of capitalism and the, the cultural as- aspect of that predatory, like just brutal thing is, is such in the forefront right now. And, um, the compassionate, you know, aspect of, of taking care of each other, at least, you know, where I am in the, <laughs> sure. in the, in the world, it's, 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 it's receding or uh, yeah. being privatized. And, you know, that to me, it's like the, the feeling you know, is capitalism gobbling everything up. <laughs> it's anything it can touch its hand, get its hands on and, and, and pull out some, some money. Um, and I, you know, I, I know this, it, that's, that's not a cogent critique. There's a lot more going on, and capitalism is, is almost certainly a necessary economic you know, force in the world, to you know, my sure. mind. Sure. But um, yeah. I'm not sort of a digital communist here, but, but I think you know, part of the intention that you're talking about that goes really is part of a, the heart. To me, it's one of the heart aspects of, of, of what I've explored and studied and the traditions I've been part of. Um, is that sort of generosity and making it, as you said earlier, accessible, um, making it free, making it
1: available
0: for those that want it. Um,
1: yeah, and I think that's that sort of, that I feel is a much more useful framing because I think too often an analysis or critique of the mindfulness industry sort of reduces itself to channels, talking about face-to-face versus digital versus books versus blah, blah, blah. And actually, I think it's much more important to to think about in terms of motivation and intention. Um, Because I'm you know, I'm relatively, I'm like, well, I'm I'm agnostic when it comes to, I I don't think like uh, that apps are necessarily that, like that, that apps are inherently good or bad or that face-to-face communities are good or bad. Ultimately, it comes down to the individual case and why they're doing it and how are they behaving. I think that's, um, and is it in service of, is it in service of people's flourishing and people reducing suffering and, and all the variants of how you want to describe that. And because for me, that's important. But again I also recognize that that is my own bias that I'm doing to this conversation which is that the purpose of a meditation related company should be primarily to to improve its users' lives um but and I recognize that not, that's not necessarily a a given and uh, and so I'll, like so that's my that's my bias that I think
2: yeah.
0: And you know, this, there's so many directions we can go here, but the one that pops to mind first is um, the sort of, I don't know if you'd call it a manifesto. It reads that way to me. Um, design manifesto, designing mindfulness, um, which I think you can find at designing And here you've, you know, I think you've really written and, and, and drawn out some really interesting design principles there's what nine of them that you can uh,
1: yeah that's right
0: and you know the, to me here you're kind of fleshing out what you know what you see that the meaning is of taking care of people's well-being and and that's what i appreciate and not not just and, and then maybe this is part of the broader conversation here with this designing mindfulness not just for individual mindfulness-based companies but for any company you know anyone that's creating um, technology that's using algorithms that's designing interfaces um, creating platforms things like this these are these are principles that that kind of uh, cross those dem- those different boundaries and dimension
1: yeah absolutely and designing mindfulness is absolutely a manifesto and it came from a really Uh, I guess, really important insight, maybe quite an obvious insight, which is, you know, when you're running a company, uh, any kind of company, it doesn't matter whether you're a meditation company or not, you always think, and you're planning, and the question that comes up is, how big is big? Or what is scale? Um, How how much is enough? These these kind of questions are... How
0: much is enough? That's a good one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How much is enough? You know, because like, in real life, those are, the answers to those questions determine the spreadsheets you model and therefore the action you take as you build out your company. So any company owner needs to go through those, that process. And as, as I was sort of reflecting on how much is enough, I sort of realized that I was thinking about just scaling, how, like the, the sort of the overall project there is to scale mindfulness, Globally, which is happening in all sorts of places. And that there's broadly two ways of doing that. One way is what I call the vertical way, which is by creating products which are explicitly mindfulness meditation products and growing them. So um, what we're doing, what Headspace is doing, what you're doing, so what all the people in working mindfulness education is doing, scaling mindfulness with a capital M. And I think that's really important, but it's also incredibly limited because as soon as you badge something, mindfulness or well-being even, it'll only ever have a limited market. Um, So the the easiest way to understand this is that the biggest meditation app in the world, so Headspace, will only ever be a relatively small app in the context of all technology. So
0: Right, it's not going to be a Spotify.
1: It's not going to be a Spotify. It's not going to be a... Uh, it's a,
0: on Spotify.
1: <laughs> sure, but
2: exactly. So, so, given that,
1: there's another way of looking at scale, which is more horizontal and about what would it be like to embed, mind, let's call it mindfulness, in everything, in all software. Because then, true social level, global level, universal level scale is possible. And it's not the same thing. So it's not, because it's not an explicit mindfulness product, it's not training people in techniques per se. But it's about taking what we know as mindfulness people and translating some of our insights and our understanding to the wider technology landscape. And yes.
2: and you know, this is this is sort of happening.
1: I sort of joke about how all the big companies we love to hate, the Instagrams, the well, Facebook Instagram the same, but the Facebooks, the, the Googles, the whoever, the Snapchats. They all have people they will have banks and banks of people who are, you know, behavioral scientists or psychologists or uh, data data scientists who are all neuroscientists even, who are whose job is it whose job it is to make people more hooked on their product so that they can then sell our attention to advertising and so on.
0: Yes, yes. And I, I saw recently, you know, Facebook Facebook's own scientists, you know, found all kinds of negative impacts sure. you know depression in teens increased rates of suicide across the population
1: sure and then the then the question then becomes what if those that same kind of talent were to apply their understanding to how do we actually use how do we actually instead of our primary objective instead of our only objective being to engage sort of so-called uh, user engagement what if we were to actually also uh, evolve our products so that they would be in support of uh, positive behavior or positive mental health traits. At the very least, um, not encourage negative ones. And yeah. you know that I'm, you know, I am a, I am a sort of you know, at times a romantic idealist, <laughs> uh, but at, at other times I'm a romantic pragmatist. So yes. In those latter times, I also know that I'm not expecting Instagram to become a net positive mental health product overnight, and, and maybe you may not even get there, but the very least is not do harm. You know go back to that old fashioned Google phrase like right? "Don't be evil," um, which has sort of fallen, disappeared mm-hmm. the sort of current generation of uh, technology platforms and um, so that's where designing mindfulness came around, which was. Given that uh, we as a mindfulness community understand a thing or two about attention and given that uh, popular technology, the most sort of pop technologies are potentially, essentially attentional technologies, how do we, uh, what, what are the kind of changes that, um, or design principles in the case of the manifesto, what, what kind of thing can, any software designer, whether you're designing a tiny thing as a, as a student, or if you're head of engineering at uh, Gmail or wherever. Yes. What are the things you can take into play? And so that's, that's, where, that's where the project came from. And we sort of articulated and go to the website, like you mentioned, Vince, uh, designmyfirst.com, and see some explicit examples. Because what we found when we started this project, it was about two years ago, when we did this project, this conversation was it was bubbling along, but it was very vague. It was very oh, big tech should be better. Um, but there were very few examples of what that would actually look like on a, what would it look like on the screen? What would it look like um, in company practice? And so that's why, that was the other motivation behind designing Mindfulness was to actually sort of show specific things that platforms could do. Um, and I think it's been really encouraging to see, I think we've played a little part of that, but I think um, the, in the last year, we've seen this whole conversation. I think really accelerated by the Cambridge Analytica scandal. The whole, the big meta the big meta conversation of technology and ethics is now front page news. Yes, and a subsection of that is this conversation about well being and technology. Right, right, and, right. And so we have started to see um, platforms, you know, Facebook and. Start, Facebook have started to sort of, and Instagram started to look at and make sort of share some of that information and provide some tools to seemingly give people some more awareness, at least over their usage. Um, and I can see, you know, this is a it's a movement that's growing, headed up, headed up by you know Tristan Harris and the Center for Humane Technology, who are doing amazing work.
0: Yeah, that was someone I was going to mention that seems like to be aligned. Yeah,
1: he's been a real sort of. Uh, Host the boy and champion for this conversation because, you know, the, uh, the, I think the, the message that him and him and his sort of colleagues and the community around him express of the, he was effectively part of a generation that was, that was in the heyday of 2000, early 2010s, uh, technology boom, but now of, Open their eyes to the damage that them and their peers have created, and I think that,
2: that and, is, and a lot of the almost, unintended
0: consequences.
1: Yeah, absolutely, technology. and I think and I think, um,
0: and, and, the I think stupi- and the stupidity, as Jaron Lanier says, <laughs> he says, <laughs> no. "I don't think I don't think we're, that we're evil here in Silicon Valley, just just stupid." So <laughs> sure. I'd include myself in that, you know, going along with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all, any, any sort of maker or designer is all guilty of that. You know, in, in my experience, the, that phrase, like unintended consequences, is massive in the context of mindfulness apps. I think the, the way that mindfulness apps have evolved, or not evolved, the way they've grown in scale over the last five to seven years is far this Is a slight switch in conversation, but it's the same if you think of the sort of the mea culpa moment that some of Silicon Valley's having at the moment around attention and well being. I think the mea culpa, I feel in my tiny way, relatively tiny way, is that when we first, when sort of the, uh, the first meditation apps started getting popular, they became much popular than we thought they'd be. I remember having. A coffee with Andy Puttkam from Headspace years ago, um, and recording that conversation. How you know we never dreamed of how big this marketplace would become, and it's been. And there's been a lot of wonderful results from that growth, but I think one of the unintended consequences that
2: is that the was well, more the
1: unintended consequences of how we've designed the product in that. Um, there'll be someone you know, Vince. I'm sure, in your polymathy, if that's the right word, which is um, a guy called Anil Dash, who's a technologist based in New York, who thinks yes. a lot about ethics and design mm-hmm. and so on, who I've I followed okay. for a long time.
0: I met, I met him uh, once uh, at a pop tech conference.
2: He was-
1: yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a very special... Human and and one of the big things that he I attended a talk of his once as well and he um, spoke about how design creates culture and what he meant by that was the design decisions that individual designers and makers and entrepreneurs put into their products come from you know they come from the individual perspective and the individual value set and if that, if the products that they make become popular and scale, then suddenly the those decision, design decisions have created a culture. They've not just created an app; they've created a culture. So right. Right. <clears throat>
0: the scale of technology is the spreading of a, the culture that that technology sort of influenced.
1: Yeah, just and bring it you know, exactly, and bring it bring it into my world. the The fact that the majority of people who try some kind of mindfulness practice for the first time, now that they do so via apps, and now now they do so via a very sort of limited number of apps, by definition, those apps have defined global, at least sort of Western English speaking, mindfulness culture, because that's how people are experiencing it there for the first time. And so you know the lights of Headspace calm and beautify to a lesser degree. We've, by literally sort of our choice of, our, you know, our choice of how we play audio, everything from our color palette to our, to the voices we put into our app. Because of how popular these apps now are, they have an influence way beyond what we thought they would do. Um, and so I'll I'll give an example of what that looks like, which is. Um, a friend of mine who teaches, in a, who teaches in New York, an insight meditation teacher, and he was teaching a beginner's class. And the majority of people, pretty much all of the people who come to that class, had done so because they really enjoyed using an app and they wanted to have a slightly more different experience, maybe a deeper experience. And when he was teaching them, he f- the feedback he got was, there wasn't enough talking because he was providing. too he was uh, he wasn't overly guiding a practice because his style is very spacious and mm-hmm. light touch. And but because all the people who'd come to his class were used to being listened to heavily guided practices, their expectations of what constituted. A practice, even a face-to-face practice, was entirely defined by the app.
0: Yes, the that's, the app. it was con- conditioned in a way.
1: Yeah, and so that that example sort of shows how an unintended consequence, therefore, of the success of meditation apps is that meditators struggle to practice by themselves because they become trained in being guided and yeah that is and so it's and we've, that's we've one that yeah problem. yeah you'll be excited you'll be familiar with that as well and
0: yeah we call it like we call it the bumper problem you know <laughs> the bowling bowling analogy sometimes oh i see <laughs> sure. when you get the bumpers up uh, yeah. get used to that it's becomes comfortable but you know you may never know the joy of of a. Uh, being able to, to sl- sling into the gutter for a while of your own mind because <laughs> you've got sure. no one to help you
2: come back.
1: <laughs> sure. And I, and also the, I think that if you were to, like, the more, the more, uh, the, the more difficult reading of that is
2: that because
1: apps have adopted the model of any other type of content online, so the Spotify model, the Netflix model, as the two sort of dominant content platforms in our culture right now. Because meditation apps use those, use those systems and techniques and technologies, it means that mindfulness and meditation has become a content business as opposed to a wisdom business, which it historically has been. So meditators have become consumers of content as opposed to explorers of their own mind with in an independent fashion. Yes, like you know, historically people have always had always had guidance and always had support, but it has typically just been that sort of support and encouragement and refinement on the path towards people ultimately being able to practice by themselves and have an arsenal of tools and skills within them. Um, But now that we've, the use of the app to effectively outsource that toolkit, it means that the, 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 the culture around meditation becomes this much more consumption culture, which is an unintended consequence of the technology, not, it just happened to be that, you know, Taking on those models just is, was done just because that made the most sense from a, from a commercial and practical perspective. But is the unintended consequence of that is that it's changed meditation culture. And we don't really know what the impact of
2: that will be going forward. So,
0: you know, going back to the whole being shot out of the canon uh, analogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you're obviously, and, and I think you know, we too, you know, with Meditate.io, are are having to constantly think about these things, kind of as we're building stuff. So we, we kind of are both inside the old, you know, the old models and paradigms that we've inherited, economic ones that that the you know, in a way, the networks that have us, the network as networks of meaning and exchange and stuff, and we have to work with that even as they don't mesh in certain ways with what I think of as kind of the deeper intentions that I want to bring forward um in in you know in what I do and how I do things you know there, there's ways in which they just don't they don't go together I've found and so so it really is a question of how you know to me how how to work with these these big huge Gaping holes between you know the the systems we've inherited and how we're having to to do things as um, entrepreneurs on the one hand and then as you know I'd say teachers on the other and you know holding these different roles. Um, Any thoughts on 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 the how (laughs) on the pragmatic part of the pragmatic uh, romantic pragmatism?
2: Yeah, I think the.
1: I'm, you know, I'm generally, I'm like, I don't want to sound like I'm pessimistic about where we are. I'm actually incredibly optimistic about where we are. I think we've, we're sort of at the end of this sort of important generation or time of mindfulness apps and I think we're moving. Certainly I see sort of, uh, I can see how through this initial growth that the market will mature and evolve and, start becoming more interesting and more sophisticated. I think the how is ultimately about being like companies or teachers or whoever being able to experiment and look at how to like what are the next develops in developments in mindfulness and what are the new models and so on. I think the the challenge with doing that is, you know, if you're if you are like a a meditate IO or a, or a Buddha it's tricky to do that by ourselves. I think because whilst we may have the ideas and we can create some really good prototypes, we it's expensive to do that experimentation. And we don't, as I don't know what it's like on your side, but i got a fairly good sense is that we can't afford to do that much experimentation and keep the lights on as well. And so, yep. The thing that I I think the thing that I think is really important and is missing at the moment is
2: research and development,
1: experimentation, innovation, creativity, however you want to describe it, into new ways of practicing, new ways of expressing these practices in an evolving technology and social context, but. Doing that in a way that's well resourced, without the pressure of having to be commercial straight away. It's an old-fashioned R and D, um, which historically would be done by universities or by industry and so on. Um, but isn't happening right now because on one side you have incredibly well successful, incredibly commercially oriented mindfulness startups doing the best they can to grow and increase their, increase their numbers and their attention and don't necessarily have the motivation to innovate that much because they're down the conventional startup route and you know, they, they have all their growth techniques and they have to just execute on them. And on the other side, you have, whether it's academic centers or traditional meditation Communities or traditions who are under-resourced and don't necessarily and even and are, are hampered in their ability to do R and D because of on the academic side, they, in my experience the argument is well, we can't do R and D because we need everything we do to be really evidence evidence based. But you can't, like, there's a complete paradox in that because you can't create the new thing and you can't work out how effective the new thing is until you create it. And so there's a, there's a paralysis um, in academia, mindfulness academia. And in, um, hmm. uh, I'm talking very you know, generally, so I'm not, um, this is just a general observation. Um, and within the sort of meditation traditions, there's often a cynicism or, or lack of understanding of digital or new channels and the sense of there being a threat. And so R&D struggles to come out of both the, both ends of the spectrum, mm. the aggressively commercial side or the uh, nonprofit side. And so what I see as the answer is what I call the missing middle, which is systematic, well-resourced R&D into new kinds of mindfulness experience and intervention and practice. Which, is, which
2: at the same time, has uh,
1: has a an underpinning of public or social value. So it's not it's not purely a commercial um, R and D system. It's just actually trying to work. because like, neither neither side is going to do that work, but that's the work I think that needs to be done. Um, otherwise, the whole mindfulness space will becomes there'll be like a schism because currently. That's what the environment is like now, where a lot of traditional academic, mindfulness people are ineffectively in denial about how successful mindfulness apps are, and on the mindfulness app side, they don't so really care. So big, they don't. They're, they, big. They, they don't really, they're big. Yeah, they don't. Really, they don't really care about the other side because it's. it's not, it doesn't matter. Um, it's not. They're not a threat, and they're not. Uh, yeah, they're not a threat and they're not, they're not the kind, same kind of audience. And so, um, and, you know, people like me and you are these people who are stuck in, are stuck in the middle where we, where, we, you know, we love the tradition and we understand it and um, come from it but at the same time understand the, the power and the excitement of uh, new technology and scale and digital culture. And so that's, that's sort of my, over the years, I sort of see how I feel like the the space is separated, and there are actually not that many people in the middle. Um, but at the same time, I'm I'm, up, I'm optimistic that um, uh, that for the next few years, because because as the, because ultimately, the growth of mindfulness apps has led to more people being interested in this stuff, and that marketplace. Yeah. That marketplace needs somewhere to go, um, and just being served fairly superficial or, or um, uniform experiences through conventional mindfulness apps. There's a point at which that isn't enough, and you know, like we did actually, we did a research project last year, which we haven't published yet, actually, about um, the pathways people take through. Mm. My, the mindfulness marketplace and there's absolutely like a growing number of people who are um, who either actively are looking for something more sophisticated or more engaging uh, or they don't know they don't know that's what they want but if they're presented with it they wouldn't move there. That. because that's another unintended consequence sort of, of mindfulness apps which is because they often present a very superficial light touch style of practice or a fairly one-paced style of practice, the user doesn't necessarily know there's more to it than that. So, um, you know, I've met people who've said, I was meditating 10 minutes a day for five years until I realized I could do more than that. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, the world changes when, like, there's something, you know, there's something, extraordinary between, you know, in, in a simple way, the difference between sitting for 10 minutes and sitting for 30, there's something that happens around that 20-minute mark where the body finally settles and the mind finally settles and a whole different types of domain experience open up. And a lot of people are not able to access that because they they just never had that. They've never been pointed out that way. And so, um, yeah, that's why I'm optimistic because I think there'll be more people creating new pathways through different kinds of thing. And currently, you know, people find their way to services like Meditate.io or they turn up to a meditation class because they enjoy the map. And that's happening organically. But I think yes. there's an opportunity for entrepreneurs to be a bit more tactical and look at, okay, um, how, do we, how do we sort of cater more to that maturing marketplace? And that's effectively what Buddhify is positioned itself to do and trying to do, um, which is we we realised that we were never going to beat Headspace and Calm at their own game because they're brilliant at what they do. Um, but what we can do is create a slightly different offer, which is to create some experiences for the person who wants to go a bit deeper or try something different, who, may, who maybe he's had an initial experience and understands the value of the practice and tried a bit of a a bit of a background, and a bit of a starting of a, uh, a regularity of a practice, or starting of an understanding of where this stuff can go, and then giving them a bit of a bridge point into depth. Um, in the, you know, that's what, again, that's what you do as well, in a much more explicit way, which is taking people into a, into a more substantial level of practice. And we're doing it in a slightly different way by introducing different styles of practice um, and because often
2: uh, often app users have typically only practiced by
1: themselves and so moving them into a, a group setting can be quite a big change and so um, the question that I'm most interested in right now is how do we encourage social styles of practice for people who've never thought Mm -hmm. of meditation as a social practice and in a way that feels quite safe. And because for a lot of, you know, again, when I say from a lot of people, I'm talking from a a basis of sort of research that we've done, which is a lot of people only consider their practice to be incredibly individual, incredibly personal. So the idea of including or opening up it up to someone else feels at best alien, at worst incredibly scary. And yes. So, um, uh, I'm interested in how, you, how one can support the socialization of an individual practitioner in different ways. I think that's an opportunity. Because, you know, like, um, uh, given that the history of the last 10 years of pop technology has been social. Um, yes. My sense is that meditation technology isn't really that social at all, and so there's a again, there's that's a big opportunity area. I think for the next few years.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's so interesting because tra- tracking over to the sort of meditation communities that I've been part of, it's be- they've become increasingly social over the last ten years. Yeah. um And then to see yeah the mindfulness space. Which itself, you know, the MBSR has a lot of social elements, and, and in a lot of ways, pedagogically, it was huge, hugely more innovative than the sort of sit in front of the, the sage on the stage model uh, sure. of teaching. But um, that doesn't—you're right—it doesn't get translated necessarily over to the app space, or doesn't get translated well. That's why it's so cool to see some of the the more recent features on BuddhaFi like transmission and. Uh, um, what was the other uh, Together, the other uh, sure. aspect that you've released? Yeah, that, that both are focusing on. Um, I want to talk about transmission. This is something you told me about a couple of years ago. Uh, I know. The, it's the, been, the we've been, been cooking this
1: for a long time. You know, I
0: mean, was it probably two or three years ago that you, I, I first, heard, first heard you talk about it? And so cool to see that, you know, it's not finally because it takes time for these things to come to fruition. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it's harvest time, you know. It's here. But yeah, it's
1: finally it's, it's out in the wild of people using it. For me, like, for me, transmission is the thing I'm most like, you know, I'm incredibly proud of what i has achieved over the years. But I think for me, transmission is the most exciting thing that I've made ever. Like, and just to explain it for the, because the vast yeah. majority of people listen to this, but know what it is. So, the simple way to describe it is, karaoke meditation. So um we take some of our most popular Buddha scripts and overlay a simple interface so that you can read out a meditation in your own voice to whoever happens to be in the room with you. Um, so that's the simple idea.
0: I love the user interface by the way, the thumbs. Oh thank Bruce. you. That's nice.
1: I think we can get into the geekness of that. But um, uh, I'll explain that now actually because I think this audience hopefully will appreciate it, which is, the way that it works, we, we were designing the interface for this and uh, wanted to make it really simple. And, um, and so the way it works is that there isn't like a press, or there isn't like a play button to start. What you do is you place your thumbs on the bottom of your screen, And when both thumbs are in place, it starts playing. So if you ever want to pause, you just lift your thumbs off the screen. And when you want to start again, you can uh, put your thumbs back. And that has a simplicity to it, but actually the real reason why I included that feature, that thumb control sort of feature, was that when you're holding a phone with your thumbs on the bottom and you're reading aloud, a meditation to another person in the room, by definition, you have to be lined up with them. And so the, the design thinking behind that, that interface was actually, how can I get the person reading the meditation, their chest to be uh, lined up with the chest of the other person so that they're facing them? And it was this sort of design decision to do that. Because ultimately, that the, the reason transmission is so important to me because it's about the app. the The app is the 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 app. The relation between the meditator and the phone becomes secondary to the relation between the 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 two people or the the many people in the room. Because what that's because I think the what I wanted to achieve with transmission was to create a a social meditation experience where the most important thing was your relationship with the other human in the room, not um, uh, what there what was happening on the screen or what was happening through the through the speaker of the phone. And so, and the app just happens to be there um, and is your support. Well, and and also that there's a really simple insight which is. It's all very well pressing play on a meditation and uh, uh, following the practice. And there can be so much value to that. But it's entirely different when the meditation is being read by someone meaningful to you and who cares about you and who's in the same space as you. So all those factors led to this sort of... um, uh, the, the, the design of this feature. And and, we, you know, trans, and the reason we call it, obviously, transmission is a, a key, important name as well, in the sense that we're, the person reading the meditation is, is, is sharing the practice. They're not, we're not placing them in that position of power. We're not saying you're a teacher, you're an instructor, um, you're an expert. We're putting them in a position of transmission, of sharing... Of generosity um, and that. So, all those dynamics into play came into it. And so, um, yeah, it's been great. We've la- we launched it a few couple of months ago as part of our new sort of membership offer. Um, and people, yeah, I think all sorts of different use cases. I think my favorites are, um, you know, parents reading meditation to their children at bedtime. Mm. We've had some of children reading the meditation to their parents at bedtime. Oh, no, that's is, smart um uh, and, and you know even and you know friends couples it's that family sort of um sense which is why it was was my real the idea of friends and family sharing meditations together was was the thing that i thought about when designing it but also we've seen you know school teachers reading meditations to their classroom um and even sort of therapists reading teachers to their to their reading practices to their clients and so all this sort of organic stuff is happening, um, and and that's why I think mean, that's I can see that evolving even further. You know, um, we also recently launched a sort of an, an Alexa skill where we put some predefined meditations on, on, on. Oh yeah, I saw that. And and the reasoning behind that was not dissimilar in that redo- removing the screen as being the primary interface and. Yes. Alexa, I, I don't know whether you have one or whatever, whatever which I'm sure you have some kind of version of, of her voice. To, to be
0: honest, I'm a, I'm holding out for something.
1: Okay. The Met office says the mercury is like the UK. She heard you. See? Oh my goodness.
2: I've
0: been hanging out with too many hippies in the mountains here. I've
1: kind of Alexa, please stop. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> That's why generation <laughs> one has need some work. <laughs> but like, but again, the reason why these devices, which I shall not name, are interesting <coughs> from a mindless perspective is that they're often, they're social devices. Um, the majority of them are in kitchens or in living rooms. And so, yes. by definition, you can start thinking about um, uh, family or relational practices. And, you know, a friend of mine actually just launched the first ever board game for Alexa, um, which is where you buy a, you buy a board game and um, you play it alongside the device which asks you the questions and so on. And so, and so he's, he's effectively invented a new way of playing. Mm-hmm using technology and it's a really, it's a really amazing, the project's called When in Rome, it's a really exciting uh, uh, product and that, uh, and again, you know, it's still very early and, you know, we're seeing, you know, I know you're doing um, experiments in VR and so on. There will be sort of nascent technologies where, in a in a few iterations time, we're going to have some really interesting, powerful and hopefully accessible, things out there. Yeah. But going back to our initial point, we need to do them in a way that gives them a chance. We need to do that R&D in a way that gives it a chance. Um, there's only so many experiments us as a company can do, can afford to do. Um, yes. And, uh, and also, as a small company, we might have an amazing experiment that we make, but we, we might not have the the capital or bandwidth or capacity to grow that opportunity. So this is where this, it comes back again to this. To the missing middle. The missing middle. And I think, um, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think there are enough moving parts in our world where the money might meet the motivation, which might meet the talent and the expertise. Um,
2: well, but i don't it hasn't it hasn't happened right
1: now, hasn't happened right away but if uh, well if there, if there um, are any if
0: there are any crypto crypto billionaires out there listening you're you're welcome to uh, help us fill in the missing middle
1: yeah i'm easily found <laughs> 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 I, you know it doesn't it doesn't take I, and like it i don't think it would take a lot actually um i don't think it would take a lot of resources to do it would just need a really strong process the thing is these kinds of processes exist in all sorts of different industry and there are lots of models out there that could be used um, and so you know like I think
0: um, uh, t- talk, talk, talk a little bit more about the vision of this because I, I got a glimpse of it when you're starting to talk about you know, um, you know w- <coughs> w- what kinds of things do you imagine this missing middle would be kind of helping explore research or flesh out or
1: sure so you know, you, it always starts with research. So you do an opening phase of research and go, okay. And the research can have all sorts of different insights. So it might say something like, um, there's a particular audience that is completely being ignored by current mindfulness apps, but is in big need of, could do a lot and, and aren't being reached by any other kind of intervention. So maybe some marginalised group or due to financial exclusion or whatever. So you have an audience. So, for example, in the UK, there are very few, it's different in the States, but there are very few programmes or projects I've ever seen that are targeting uh, young people of colour through mindfulness. I'd, I'd actually, I'm actually not aware of any in the UK. that are explicitly trying to um, evolve and share practices for those kind of communities that yeah. uh, overall term can represent. Yeah. And so, so let's take that as a challenge area, so as an example. And go, okay, here's an audience. Um, then we then you do so you go through a design process and you create some prototype ideas, ideally working with representatives from that kind of audience, audiences. And then you iterate and evolve and prototype and work out which ones are scalable, work out which ones work, which one work out which ones Can actually reach more than one audience and then you grow and then you grow those and make sure there's sufficient marketing and storytelling and power behind those things Um, and so that's that's sort of and that's that's not that hard like it's not doesn't have to be hard to do it just does require a bit of fuel and a bit of uh ultimately needs two things one well three things One, it needs the sort of the money and the the people. And there's the resources bit. The second is it needs a really clear and well-designed process. Um, And the third thing it needs, at the end, it needs the ability to take products to scale, whether through partnership with brands or partnership with other companies or organisations working in those audiences. Again, say we were making mindfulness products for young people of color in the UK. You'd partner with certain influencers or certain fashion brands or musicians or sports teams and find ones which are aligned with the mission. And then they give you, then suddenly you've got a marketing channel for whatever comes out. And it's that kind of system which, these are the kinds of processes I've been involved in, in the past. And so like, you know, again, it's my bias. I've worked in these kinds of things in different contexts. But I think, you know, these kinds of interventions, these kinds of innovation units or R&D systems, which is what would um, would help kick on the mindfulness marketplace into a new space and can help negotiate this difficult territory between the commercial and the nonprofit, which is at the moment very... Binary, unfortunately, binary, and you know some of some of what gets made might get hoovered up and nicked and commercialised by other people. But I think that's a that's fine. To some extent, that's fine. Um, and uh, ultimately, it's about again, it's ultimately about accessibility and marrying. For me, it's about marrying authenticity with accessibility, and that's that's the, for me the simplest way of describing it, which is authenticity so that it honors the tradition understands the tradition um and comes from a clear base of understanding of the practice but at the same time can scale and be designed and built in such a way that real people will actually use it and enough people for it to be significant Hmm. and what do you
0: now we're kind of i think look you know looking out staring peering into the possible future futures and uh you know looking looking out you know this is a vision for the future i think this is the idea of bringing thing you know bring bringing mindfulness into more places and and into more communities um that where where it isn't currently accessible i think that's that's one part of maybe the answer to the question of like what is the future of uh digital mindfulness
1: yeah and i think that the same process can apply to... So starting with a, a need is one way of, of uh, going through that process. So I described a needs-based approach. Okay, we need to... There's a community that's, that's being ignored, so let's, let's uh, design products for that community. That's a need. And then there's the other approach, which is the opportunity-based way, which is the, hey, there's this thing called VR. Hey, there's this thing called AR. Hey, there's this thing called voice. Hey, there's right. this thing called AI. And that's, you can still go through that same process, but it just starts from a different position. Um, yeah.
0: Is that, is that the difference between a more kind of capitalist-based approach to creating a product and something else?
1: No, I think it's more... I wouldn't necessarily call it that. I'd say it's more uh, an engineering-led approach versus a design-led approach. So the engineering ledger approach, meaning we've got a cool technology, let's deploy right. it right. versus the let's solve a problem. Okay. Um, okay. And I think they're, I think they're both I equally valid. They're valid routes. So that's all we need to do, Vince.
2: <laughs> well, fortunately,
0: it's not, you know, when you say we, I know that we is big. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people working in the space and creating good things, and I, you know, I know some of them are listening. <laughs> so if you're listening, thank you. Um, I, I'm, I'm really excited. I, you know, this is a little bit of a side note here, but related. Um, I've got an Android phone coming. Um, I'm excited to to try Ciempo the. Android oh
1: project. yeah, I, I moved to Android a year or two years ago, and yeah, I think the Ciempo project is great. And I spoke to Andrew and the team there.
0: Yeah, Andrew Dunn, right? Uh,
1: that's right, I think it's one of the really good examples of turning some of these insights into practical technologies, and um, explicitly around the area of bringing back some more control to how you your attention on your phone.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a very that seems like a very interesting project, and I know at the last Google I/O. Uh, the C, I think it may, may have been the CEO of Google, the new CEO, who's talking about um, curbing addictive patterns, you know, or at least giving some sort of, uh, you know, who knows, you know, who, what that's going to look like in Google. But I mean, they they have been more clearly, more open as a mobile operating system to people being able to to redesign the experience of using it in different directions. Like, tempo isn't possible on an iOS oh, device. So something interesting there. That's almost like the, you can see almost to me the, the the hints at potentially the beginning of the response to these issues which you've raised with designing mindfulness and Tristan Harris. You know, has been ra- you know raising, and it's it's almost like you can see a little bit that the that the the mega you know the mega uh, attention economy companies are starting to maybe respond a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think.
2: Just a little. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh, come on.
1: You know, and it's hard to tell whether they're doing just to get ahead of the story right. um, or, or they're genuinely motivated by the well-being outcomes. My sense is a bit of both. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's an argument that we can't expect Silicon Valley to solve the problems created by Silicon Valley. Um, right, right. Uh, but you know, I'll welcome I'll welcome all the good news that we get, and I think the like a word you mentioned just before of open. I think that I think that could be the secret to a lot of this, which is mm, sort of sharing the intelligence that we have, and because I think within a uh, within a sort of narrow sort of startup system, there's like an idea that there's one winner and, right. Right. Um, uh, and then that's it, sort of, at the moment there's sort of, like you know, like Headspace and Calm are doing so well and uh, the there's a sort of sense that one can't compete with them or uh, the ship has sailed. Um, but I think the this, my I'm
2: sort of a bit more generous of view than that in that I think if men, if mindfulness meditation was purely a content game
1: then maybe that ship has sailed but it's not, it's so much more than that and so um, that's why I think there's, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for growth and development and uh, so yeah, no, I'm excited about. I'm really excited about the 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 space going forward. But like I said, I think it does need some smarter uh, styles of. I think what's missing is a sector level view. And I think what I before before I got into working in meditation stuff sort of accidentally, I used to work in the arts and the cultural sector in the UK, and I and a lot of the work I was doing was thinking about things at a sector level or like a higher level, systems level way of thinking. And I think that's, no one's currently doing that for us. Um, And uh, I think the more this marketplace matures and grows, the more people start thinking about that wider sector level view and actually sort of. Get over their individual prejudices and vested interests and start thinking about mindfulness as an industry and I think um, for for like I think that's a sign of a maturing maturing space is that it it has that sort of top level view rather than little fiefdoms here and there and if in the next five ten years all different parts of the mindfulness industry can consider it less of a zero-sum game and more of a overall conversation and overall industry, we can support each other. And, um, you know, like universities, there's, there's no reason why mindfulness for contemplative academic units are, aren't in direct partnership with successful mindfulness apps to spin out their insights and spill out their understanding. But at the moment, the, again, there's, not, there's sort of, we don't have those connections. Um, and so, you know, I hope that it's all happened so fast. And so I think we, my hope is that things settle down, um, people start appreciating other parts of the, the system, what they do, and also start to see their own deficits. Um, but for us to ultimately get there, we need to, go back to that original touchstone, which is the whole point of this stuff, is to reduce the suffering in people.
0: After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting buddhistgeeks.network And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting
2: BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.